the case against the Apostle Paul, as he stands before Felix, is actually really serious. It's really serious. It may not seem all that serious, kind of 2,000 years later here, you know, in sleepy old Adelaide, but if there is one thing that the, the Romans hated, it was public disorder. And that's exactly what they accused the Apostle Paul of. And it's actually really clever of them, right? After this big sucking up introduction um, from Tertullus uh, to Felix, you know, he goes, oh, you know, Tertullus, you're, you're just, oh, you know, Felix, oh, you're just a wonderful, you're such a beautiful man. You're an extraordinary governor. We've never had anyone like you. And I don't think we'll ever have anyone like you ever again. You're just the most wonderful, you know, Felix. You get the picture, right? He's just sucking up, you know, loves this guy. He then says in verse 5, have a look with me, chapter 24, verse 5, we have found this man, he's talking about Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of that Nazarene sect and he's even tried to desecrate the temple. So we, we seized him. It's a very good strategy, right, on the part of the rulers in Jerusalem because, as I said, the Romans hated nothing more than troublemakers. I won't you put your hand up if you feel like you're a troublemaker but they hated troublemakers hey there's a few at the back there we go welcome it's good to have you at church um they hated troublemakers and history tells us right that governor felix was absolutely unforgiving when it came to dealing with troublemakers we won't look at it today but there's a guy named josephus who wrote the book called jewish antiquities he was a jewish historian wrote kind of the the history of the jewish people around this time and he describes felix as being ruthless ruthless and this is the guy that paul faces Tertullus says this guy felix is a troublemaker just like the other ones you know the other ones you've dispatched to rome and who never came back and were buried so it's really serious stuff but paul in verses 10 to 13 completely denies the charges and quite rightly right he hasn't had a band of brothers or brigands or troublemakers stirring up riots he's been doing religious service back in jerusalem and i love how in verse 14 paul just turns the whole thing around to theology so much like the apostle paul he's been accused of all these political and civic kind of crimes he turns the whole thing to christian belief have a look at verse 14 paul says however you know, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. It's a political term. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Paul, he worships the same God as the accusers. He believes the same scriptures as his accusers. The only difference is that he follows the Jewish path, which he calls the way. I follow the way which they call a sect, which was basically a political movement. Paul says, I just follow the way. It's actually Luke's kind of favourite term for the Christian faith, actually. Verse 22 again, uh, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. Now, it's probably, it's probably true to say, right, that Paul probably never referred to Christianity or never refer to himself as a Christian. Certainly not Anglican, or Lutheran, or independent evangelical reformed Acts 29 pastor. Like he probably never referred to any of those terms, right? And, and to be honest, right, this morning, I would give up, like this is how I describe myself. 
I am a proud, reformed, evangelical, Acts 29 church planting Christian. That's who you're looking at, right? But I would give up all of those labels in a flash if they passed their use by date, if they became kind of damaged goods. I'm not wedded to those labels. In the end, we are all followers of the way, the hodos, the road that Jesus taught. That's at the center. And, and, and that's, that's who we are. We're followers of the way, the road that is just the path of life that Jesus taught us to follow, any disciple. And you know what? At the center of the way is the resurrection. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection if you're a follower of him. Notice the emphasis on the theme of resurrection in this passage. Verse 15, And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Then down to verse 20. Um, Those here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. That was back in chapter 23. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. As far as Paul is concerned, he is on trial for what? For the gospel, for the resurrection of Jesus as a pledge for the resurrection of the entire world. That is what Paul is there for. And I find this really lovely because it's clear that that is the only thing that's worth being in prison or on trial for. The resurrection is the point of difference for Paul and his first century opponents in society. And I think it's actually really clarifying for us today. If we're going to get up the nose of Australian society or Adelaide, you know, noble society, um, which we will, I think, do increasingly as we stand out for Jesus in our culture, as followers of the way, we might as well get up the nose of our society for the right thing, yeah? For the gospel. That's the point of difference. So, I, you know, like, let's think about this for a minute. I wholeheartedly believe that we as followers of the way, as followers of Jesus, should be advocating for asylum seekers, refugees, and for the poor. Absolutely. But I don't think it's the hill that we should die on as Christians. I don't think it should be our major point of difference between us and the culture around us. I also wholeheartedly believe that as Christians, we should be advocating for the truth beauty and the goodness of marriage as it has been universally understood and lived out for for millennia. But it's not something we should die on the hill for. It shouldn't be our main point of difference between us and the world around us. I also wholeheartedly believe that we should be speaking up for the unborn and for the dying. Speaking up for those who can only cry for mercy and not justice. But again, it should not be the hill that we die on. The real point of controversy for followers of the way and those of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for our rescue and for our salvation. Which doesn't mean, right, that preaching the gospel is the only thing we ever do. There's actually a great reminder tucked away in this chapter. While the church in the first century here is going hard at preaching the gospel in the world, it never failed to care for the poor. 
locally and overseas. That's my next point, the collection. Here's an interesting question for you. Why did Paul, who was just a couple of weeks away from getting to Rome, which was his, you know, first century, that was his goal to get from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, which in that day was Rome. Paul's like, he's like within touching distance of a bowl of bolognese, right? You know, in Rome or a margarita pizza and a glass of Prosecco. I don't know. He's, we can smell it. Why? Why, when he's so close, did he decide to go back to Jerusalem? Why? Turn to the person next to you. Again, don't handshake, don't fist pump, don't hug. No hugging. No, no. Um, no that's all right. <laughs> why did he go? When he's so close to Rome, why did Paul go, let me get a ship back to Jerusalem? Have a quick chat to the person next to you. See if you can come up with the answer. Go. Anyone know the answer? He was told, yeah, right. Anything else? His heart was there, yeah, right, yeah. Anyone else? Had some business there, yeah, right. Had to sell some tents or something, I don't know, or spread the gospel, yeah, right, yeah, sure. Unconditional love, yeah, right, yeah, for sure. Well, the answer's on the screen. Tucked away, 24 verse 17. Um, he was delivering a charitable gift to the poor. Um, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. It's amazing, right? I know it's like one little verse tucked away in this epic drama and narrative that is the book of Acts. And um, I've got to tell you, right, PhDs, like heaps of PhDs have been written on this one particular verse, on this kind of concept of the collection. Um, it's amazing. Um, not, because, not because, like, scholars are nerds, right? They are. But um, if you're here with a PhD, again, welcome to church. It's great to have you. But it's, it's a major deal. Uh, we know from the letters of Paul, which form a large part of our New Testament that you have in your hands right now, Paul spent years and years and years collecting money from all the Gentile, non-Jewish churches in Turkey and Greece that he had established through the preaching of the gospel. He'd been collecting this huge amount of money, right, for years and years and years from these Gentile churches to give to the poor Christians in Jerusalem who'd suffered a massive famine between the years 44 and 49 AD. And the effects of that went on for like at least a decade after that. Paul believed it was absolutely critical to collect money from Gentiles and deliver it to the Jerusalem people who were poor. You get a glimpse of this, right, from Paul's letter to the Romans, um, which was actually written about one to one and a half years before this scene we have here in Acts chapter 23-24. So we get a glimpse of Paul's plans. Here he writes to the church at Rome. Remember, this is written one and a half years, probably before Acts 24. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there for Macedonia and Achaia, Asia Minor, Greece, Turkey, were pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them 
For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. You get it? The Jews gave the nations, the Gentiles, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the least they can do when the Jews are suffering is to support them. And the other thing to say briefly here is that you know, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we learn that this collection that Paul was gathering up was so big, with so many churches contributing to it, that the collection right, was so massive, so significant, that each church would provide like an escort to go with Paul, you know, wherever he went, right? So by the end, right, by the time Paul ends up back in Jerusalem, maybe 20 people are travelling with him. You know, it's like the treasurer of each church, right? You know, kind of going, oh, I've got to make sure Paul doesn't go and buy too many, you know, I don't know. What's that? Maseratis back in Jerusalem. There you go. Maybe that's what he was doing. Um, this amount of money was so significant. They provide, you know, I think Paul had an escort with him from each of these churches um, to make sure it got to where it was meant to go, but also to help protect Paul probably from, from bandits and people along the way who wanted a piece of it. It was a big deal. And I, I, you know, you go, what are you talking about, Simon? Like, what are you, what's, what's, why are you going on about this? Well, here's the thing. I love the fact that here we have a reminder that the chief evangelist of the early church was also the director of the world's first international aid project, yeah? The chief evangelist of the early church was also the instigator of the world's first international aid project. It's amazing. There's no evidence anywhere for an international aid project like this before this time. What a wonderful reminder. A reminder that we as God's people should be supporters of, of ministries like the Gideons, right, who are all about getting the Word of God into the hands of men, women and children all over the planet, but that we should also be giving and supporting and contributing to aid projects which alleviate suffering of the people around the world. We want to, make, we want to be people like that. Um, I read this wonderful book called Generous Justice by Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller, preacher, a church leader in New York City. Uh, and in this book, Generous Justice, he talks about the idea that for some reason, we've ended up in some places and in some times in history where we've got this split between you know, gospel ministry, word ministry and mercy ministry. And we can end up, you know, sometime down the track, we can end up with you know, churches and organisations which are all about word ministry and no mercy ministry, caring for the poor, doing justice. And on the other side, we can end up with people who have abandoned the word and just kind of do social justice type work. And in this book, he really shows us really clearly, I think, from the scriptures, that, that word ministry and mercy ministry are inseparable. Now, it may not be that the relationship is like 50-50, right? But there's, a, there's, a, there's an inseparability between them, word and mercy. His, his phrase is that there's an asymmetrical and yet inseparable connection. He would say the word of the gospel is the most important thing to get out. We've got to get the word of life out because that is how people come to know Jesus and are saved. And at the same time, inseparably connected is mercy, works of justice, caring for the poor, acts of love. I'm going to leave that there. Sadly, actually, we don't know how this incredible gift that Paul was collecting was received. We have no... We don't know. Like, you know, did the saints back in Jerusalem go, woo, 
cool, great, let's have a party. Oh, we don't know. We don't know. There's no reference to it after Acts chapter 24, verse 17. But we do know how the gospel that Paul proclaimed back in Jerusalem was received. And the one word is mixed. It was a mixed response. On the one hand, right, I don't know if you caught it, Paul gets to cover heaps of ground with Felix about the gospel. Have a look at verse 24. Have a look at the topics that he gets to cover. Um, Paul gets to cover with Felix. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul, listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Yes, that's the gospel. That's, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, he's coming back. That's the gospel. Verse 25, Paul talked about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid. That's enough an hour, he said. Yeah. Now remember, right, this is over a, a two-year period, right? This is not just a quick cup of coffee down at TTP, you know, and be on our way. This is, this is conversations happening over two years. Felix uh, would call for Paul. Paul would pick his topics and speak about him. He would always say, you've got to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Felix. You've got to trust in Jesus. Um, otherwise, you're doomed. But he would, you know, but he knew what kind of man Felix was as well. Felix was this licentious, brutal, impulsive, lustful despot. The kind of guy you probably don't want to have a cup of coffee with down at TTP. And I love, right? You know, here's, here's, here's Felix, this pretty kind of character licentious and lustful and despotic and i love how paul speaks to him about did you see the list self-control isn't that great righteousness the original word could also mean justice and the judgment to come yeah isn't it great no wonder felix says right that's enough let's go away you know i've had enough with you it's great so Paul, right, he gets to cover so much of the gospel. It's really wonderful. But on the other hand, Felix's motives, right, I think are pretty anything but spiritual. Have a look at verse 26. So with all this gospel talk going on, at the same time, Felix was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he would send for him frequently and talk with him. How frustrating. I bet on some days, right, Paul would have been thinking, I'm really getting somewhere with Felix, right? I think, I think maybe, I don't know, this week or next week, I think he's going to give his life to Christ. You know, I, there's so much good evidence here. Have you ever had that experience when you've been sharing the gospel with someone? You know, you're kind of going, I feel like we're making gains today. I feel like someone's like they're coming to understand the, the love and the beauty and the majesty and the power of Jesus. And they seem to be falling in love with him. They're not really focused on their cappuccino much today. They're more focused on Jesus. And, and then... It sort of seems like the complete opposite. There's nothing going on. Um, Felix is a bit like that. Paul, it seems like Paul is getting somewhere with Felix and yet then discovers that all really Felix wants is a bit of, bit of money. It could be, right, that Felix was aware that Paul had come to Jerusalem with that giant, you know, stash of cash and he wanted to get a slice of it. We don't know. But either way, the response is mixed and it really is all summed up isn't it um, in verse 27 of, of sorry verse 27 when two years had passed felix was succeeded by portius festus but because felix wanted to grant a favor to the jews he left paul in prison <sighs> it's a bit like that's not very nice and this is pretty much the pattern for the rest of the book of acts right the rest of the book of acts is basically imprisonment beatings shipwreck preaching that falls on deaf ears 
a bit more beating, and then a looming trial with the even crazier Emperor Nero. That's pretty much the rest of the book of Acts. And, and yet, things are not always as it seems, right, when it comes to the gospel. Sure, you don't see an extraordinary rate of conversions here as we did in the first half of the book. The first half of the book, thousands of people coming to Christ. You see none of that here. But something else is happening. Something really significant is happening. Did you see it? The gospel cause is inching towards Rome. Chapter 24 records for us the first ever presentation of the gospel to Roman power. It's never happened up until this point. Finally, the gospel has come to Rome in that Paul has shared the good news of Jesus with the governor Felix. In the next chapter, right, if you get to have a chance to read it out, Paul gets to present the gospel, sure, he's in prison, to the next Roman governor, Festus, and to the Roman puppet king Agrippa. And together, Festus and Agrippa, get this, decide to send Paul on an all-expenses-paid trip to where? To Rome. Isn't that cool? In other words, right, behind the scenes is the secret hand of God sovereignly superintending and sustaining the cause of his gospel. A cause that looks like it's lost, but it isn't. It's on the move from Rome where it will literally then go to the ends of the earth. And you know what? That is all that mattered to Paul. He didn't care what happened to him. He only cared that the gospel keeps going forward. You know what I love? I love as well. I love reading about, you know, reading Acts and then reading the letters of Paul in the New Testament because we actually have a few of Paul's letters that he wrote during these prison years. We actually know what the Apostle Paul was thinking about in these years while he's in prison, while there's seemingly no success with the Roman governors. But listen to what Paul writes. Paul writes to the Philippians while he's in prison. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Wow. Sure, the Roman guards, the governors aren't listening, but the whole palace guard is. They're all aware of Christ's life, death and resurrection. How else have they heard the good news? 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's in prison, written a couple of years later. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, Paul says, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But get this, but God's word is not chained. Can you say that with me? God's word is not chained. I love that. On the one hand, Acts 24, God's word is chained, but it's not. God's word is on the move. The cause of Christ wins even when it seems to lose because the sovereign, sustaining, secret hand of God is behind all things. I love it. Is that encouraging? Here's some examples, right? I mean, over the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years, right, we've seen the rise of the new atheists, yeah? Um, in the patron saint of new atheism, you know, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and those guys, you know, kind of banging on about their new atheism. And, and it seems right. I don't know. I remember, I don't fly on planes very often, but I remember there was a couple of times, maybe 10, 15 years ago, where I walked into, you know, a couple of, you know, domestic airports and waiting area and terminals. And it seemed like every second person was reading The God Delusion. 
You ever had that experience? Like every single person, you know, Richard Dawkins, God delusion, new atheism, everyone's just drinking in this stuff. And there's a sense in which you go, wow, they're, they're publishing things, they're very vocal, they're very hardcore, and what are we going to do? And yet, at the same time, as a result of that new atheist movement, there have been so many opportunities given to various people to defend the Christian faith and to proclaim the gospel both in private and publicly. Despite the fact it seems like it's losing, there's all these great opportunities. And in many ways, right, lots of social commentators are suggesting that the new atheists have actually turned people away from atheism. Not, you know, like running to Christ necessarily, but there's a sense of which their militancy and hardcore nature has turned people away. There's been opportunities to preach the gospel. There's the secret hand of God, right? When it seems like everything's losing, the secret hand, sovereign God, hand of God is at work. We've got a guy at our church. His name's Bruce, one of the loveliest guys we've met. He's from China, came out from China two years ago, wasn't a follower of Jesus. He's come to know the good news of Jesus. He's been saved, he's been baptized in our church. He's on fire for the Lord Jesus. And um, he came to know Jesus. Um, he's, um, he's probably going to stay in Australia for at least a little while. But I remember chatting to Bruce, he's like, um, late last year, he came to me and said, oh, I'm going to go back to China um, over the, the summer, over you know, Christmas time, and I'm going to go back and see my parents. They don't know that I've come to know Jesus yet. And I said, oh, you know, like, how can I help you to do that? And he goes, well, you can pray for me, because I just don't know how they're going to respond. And so Bruce um, went away, he was away for about four weeks, and I remember coming back to church after I'd been on holidays for a couple of weeks as well, late January, bumped into Bruce at church. He's he, one of the guys that serves on our coffee ministry, and he's frothing milk. I said, hey, Bruce, how'd you go? He said, well, my parents aren't Christian yet, but I had an opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus to my mum and dad. They didn't, they didn't kind of throw me out. They didn't give their life to Jesus, but I got to preach the good news of Jesus to them. They've never heard about Jesus before. And I don't know, that, if nothing else happens this year in our church, if nothing else encouraging happens, which I don't think it will, but, you know, but that was extraordinary. Because here's a man whom God, in his kindness and providence, brought to North Adelaide. He heard the good news of Jesus. He came to know Christ. He's been baptized. He loves Jesus. And he's gone back to, the, you know, to China. And he's proclaimed the gospel. The gospel just inches, inches forward. Yeah. So we're praying for Bruce's mum and dad. If you are a praying person, would you pray for his mum and dad as well? That they would come to know Jesus. Another story I heard from China some time ago um, that a woman uh, was being interviewed. Her husband in China was a pastor. He'd been arrested uh, for preaching the gospel and the punishment that he'd received for preaching the gospel under the Chinese government was five years hard labour in a camp. And this woman was being interviewed and that's, that's for preaching the good news of Jesus, right? Like literally just telling people about where you can find real life. She was sharing this story, right? And she is weeping and weeping and weeping. But can I tell you, she was not weeping tears of sorrow. She was, she was weeping tears of joy. Do you know why? Because in this camp, her husband had been able to preach the gospel to the prison guards. Two of them had become Christian. And were now allowing the gospel, men, men and women to meet around and have a Bible study in the camp. So she, yes, Yes, she misses her husband desperately. 
and doesn't want him to be in prison, yeah? But he preached the gospel and people are getting saved and she's just going, praise the Lord. I find that massively challenging, yeah? The secret sovereign hand of God at work, bringing new life where it just seems utterly hopeless. And we've been reminded of that today. Thanks, brother, for reminding us today of the end of the story on the screen. A man at his, the end, literally the end of his life, just picked up a word of, the, of God. He came to know that God loves him. He's saved. You know, we may not meet him in this lifetime, but we will, for sure, in the next. Where we will be high-fiving each other. We will be fist-pumping. We will be shaking hands. We'll be doing all kinds of things, right? No virus. Just in the presence of God forever. What seemed like a loss became a win. So, brothers and sisters, I just want to I want to leave you with this. When the the cause of Christ wins, even when it seems to lose, yeah? You trust in the sovereign, superintending, secret hand of God. So, brothers and sisters, let us leap out in public as we live and as we speak for Jesus at any opportunity we have. Sometimes I don't know if you're like me. You're going to feel like a bit of an idiot. But we're just followers of the way, yeah? Followers of Jesus.